All right, everybody, um, it's just after two o'clock. So um, welcome back to Friday's Critical Care Curriculum. I know we've been off for a couple of weeks for the holidays, so hopefully everyone had a nice holiday and a nice new year. Um, and hopefully everyone is staying safe as the numbers are obviously getting worse. Um, so we've planned a couple of these kind of intermittent interspersed COVID updates and uh, Dr. Bill Greer, who's one of the pulmonary critical care fellows, is going to be doing today's COVID update. And I think lots obviously has happened with Omicron and some new therapies that are um, coming up in the news. So Dr. Greer was kind enough to go through um, some of the updates in COVID. And then depending on time and Dr. Shanholtz's availability, I'd ask him if he was uh, able to kind of stop by and talk about what crisis standards of care actually are. Um, a lot of the hospitals are moving towards crisis care based on the numbers and the surge. And I think we kind of throw that term around, but I certainly don't uh, necessarily have a complete understanding of what does that mean? So I thought it might be nice for uh, others to hear what exactly that is. Um, so anyway, thank you again for being here. And Dr. Greer, uh, I, will, I will leave it up to you. Great. Thanks, Dr. Living. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. I uh, hope everyone's enjoying their Friday. Um, so I am doing the 2022 COVID update um, with major changes to both uh, incidents and treatment to COVID since the last one. Uh, my goals are kind of to provide a little bit of a 10,000-foot view. Um, we'll go through the objectives, but I also want to kind of keep it light, hopefully a little bit educational, um, and hopefully conversational. So feel free to ask questions, interrupt, share personal um, anecdotes as we uh, go through the hour. Uh, so as I was putting this talk together, um, you know, these glaring headlines keep on popping up, regardless of how you consume media. Um, this was CNN's main headline on the Wednesday. Um, Dr. Fauci saying that the highly contagious Omicron variant will find just about everybody. Uh, but vaccinated people still fare better. And so we'll kind of talk about um, cases, mortality, projections, predictions. We'll talk about the Omicron variant, um, looking at a couple of articles discussing infectivity, vaccine breakthrough, and then therapies that are active and those that are rendered obsolete. We'll spend a little bit of time looking at current therapies, including new therapies um, with recent EUA approvals. And then we'll talk a little bit about crisis standards, including the updated CDC return to work guidelines and the AHA guidelines um, regarding CPR and in-hospital arrest. So moving forward, I think the first thing I want to do is discuss the rapid rise in positive cases. Um, and so a lot of the data comes directly from the CDC or the NHHS um, website. And I think it's pretty impressive just getting lost in that for a little bit, seeing the just massive amounts of data that they use, um, and then the deep learning and the AI predictive models um, and kind of how accurate they've been and how they've gotten more accurate throughout the course of the pandemic. So just as a reminder, 62 million Americans have been diagnosed with COVID. Um, as of January 11th, the seven-day um, death rate was 3.4 per 100,000. And then there have been 837,274 deaths from COVID. Um, this number is pretty striking. Uh, and, and regardless of what your political affiliations are, what your conspiracy beliefs are, I think that it's important to just remember the, the sum total of the effect that this pandemic has had 
Um, and this actually came up in an Uber ride to work this morning. Um, but I think it's, it's a staggering amount of uh, mortality. And I think that we see it being, you know, frontline critical care docs and providers. Um, and then kind of taking a more of a snapshot to Maryland, um, over the last week when I put this together, there were 70 new deaths. Um, I'm sorry, there were 70 deaths in the last day. Um, there was 384 deaths in the last week. Um, and then the positivity rate has increased to above 20%. And this mirrors the rate of rise in testing, or the rate of rise in testing mirrors the rate of ICU beds, hospital beds, and mortality. And so out of all the patients testing positive since the start of the pandemic, which is about 61 million, um, you know, close to 10 million um, tested positive in the last 30 days, which is a significant proportion of all positive tests in the past. I think this, this bar graph really reflects that as we're chugging along, um, we were at the peaks last um, respiratory viral season, and then just sky high, um, one, close to 1.4 million um, in daily tests that are positive. And so looking at how the rate of rise in testing and the mortality, how does that affect hospitals, including hospital staffing? How does it affect our job? How does it affect patient volume? Um, the the HHS.gov um, kind of puts together these little snapshots, and I think they – provide a, a, a well-appreciated um, representation of the impact. So out of all the hospital inpatient beds of 720,000, 80% across the country were full. Um, these are in hospitals that uh, report to Medicaid and Medicare. And then about 20, a little bit more than 20% were um, occupied by patients testing positive for COVID. And having just finished up um, our triage role in the medical ICU, uh, I fielded calls from uh, what I felt was the entire eastern seaboard, um, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Washington, Virginia, West Virginia. And so I was able to go state by state and look at the numbers and the impact that this recent wave surge has had. And so for focusing on Maryland, um, out of the 10,000 plus inpatient beds, um, 9,000 were in use. Um, which was about 87%. And more than a third of all inpatient beds were occupied by a patient testing positive for COVID. Now, there's a little bit of discrepancy between testing positive for COVID and being symptomatic with COVID, um, which is not really captured in this data. And we'll talk about the uniqueness of the Omicron uh, variant and why that may be a little bit skewed. PA um, reporting 85% bed um, fulfillment with a little bit less than a third filled with COVID positive patients. DC kind of mirrors right around us, 80% and a little bit less than a third. And then Virginia is less than 80 and 22% of patients um, with COVID. And then West Virginia is a little bit less. Um, but it is good to kind of see the surrounding states, um, especially as, as you get called from different states looking to transfer patients. So that was all inpatient beds from the nation to the state level. And then the next two slides, we're just looking at ICU beds specifically. Um, and so across the nation, 82% of all ICU beds that are in use are full. Um, and just under 30, uh, or just under a third of them are full or occupied by COVID-19 uh, patients. And then in Maryland, 
you can see we're a little bit above the national average in COVID-19 patients occupying hospital beds. Um, we're about we're a shade under about half. So close to 80% of our beds are full and a little bit less than half are due to COVID positive patients in the ICU. And then I do wonder um, kind of what they mean by staffed ICU beds, um, because as everyone knows, staffed ICU beds are fluctuating kind of day by day in what we have the capabilities and the, the clinical staff to, to have a staffed bed. So looking at the rate and rise in testing, the rate and rise in bed utilization and the rate of rise of ICU admissions, um, what does that kind of look at predictive for mortality in the coming weeks? And so with this predictive algorithm, um, we're looking at a, a weekly death total um, approaching 25,613 across the nation. Um, this is compared to the last spike in January of 2021, um, and it's about a 9% increase. Um, so this is in the next four weeks, the predictive models is suggesting that across the nation, there'll be close to a 10% increase in the weekly amount of deaths from COVID-19. Then how's that breakdown for Maryland? So our peak weekly mortality actually occurred relatively recently, um, end of 2021, um, you know, with the prior surge kind of getting us close to the 400 mark and the initial surge right at the 400 mark. So the predictive model suggests the peak weekly mortality for our state will be 622. Um, so absolute numbers doesn't seem that much different, uh, but that's a 24% increase from the maximum weekly mortality that we've actually experienced. And so what does that mean from a hospital system or a hospital perspective, not necessarily a systems perspective? Uh, so this is from today's um, bed utilization email. And yellow is not good, meaning we're close to capacity or we're um, having difficulty staffing further beds. And so medicine, surgery, 99% full. Cardiology, 93%. Neuroscience is 96%. Um, shock trauma, 92%. I don't remember the last time I opened one of these emails and didn't see that our emergency department was on um, red and yellow alert. And so why is that? Why are we experiencing a surge and capacity issues? Um, and why are we seeing an increased rise in the rate of COVID infections? Um, and the other question is, will we see the expected mortality increase? And I think the answers to those we'll be looking at the most recent variant of concern, which has rapidly become the main variant in the United States. So the variant of concern that we're talking about is Omicron. And I don't know if anyone has ever watched Futurama, but every time I hear Omicron, I always think of Lur um, from Omicron Percy I-8, um, a little bit of, I guess, nerd culture thrown into the talk. Uh, but so in late November, the WHO received specimens from Botswana and South Africa um, with increased mutations, which we'll talk about. Um, and because of these increased mutations and then increasing rates of infection, uh, the WHO um, named the variant Omicron and classified it as a variant of concern. Um, we followed suit about a week later, four days later, um, designated as a variant of concern. And then the first case was diagnosed in December 1st um, with the Omicron variant. Previously, we've had Delta as the predominant variant, especially during this third wave. And so this 
this figure, I think, really kind of elegantly shows just the profound, almost uh, exponential increase in um, variants that are infecting the population. Um, so this is October, and then this is the this is last week, January 8th. And as you can see, Delta was the major variant. And right around the beginning of December, we had a little bit of signal that Omicron was in the United States. And then just incredibly rapidly, Omicron has become the major prevailing variant. And this is important because of the um, infectivity, vaccine escape, and therapies rendered ineffective with Omicron. Um, and I think we're seeing that it's such a pronounced variant is because of the significantly higher proportions of patients testing positive for COVID. So how does Omicron affect the surge? Um, and I think the, the data um, shows that Omicron is leading to a surge through a couple of different ways. Um, this paper by Pullum et al. Um, looked at the emergence of Omicron in South Africa um, and, and noted that the rates of vaccination in South Africa are very low. Um, so we'll take that with a grain of salt. But what they looked at, they looked at 2.7 million people um, who had prior infections, um, and they compared rates of reinfections with rates of de novo infections over the course of uh, November 1st to November 27th. So taking the rates of reinfection and the rates of primary infection during this time, they looked at hazard ratios regarding reinfection with this variant of concern with Omicron. And so what they saw when they compared wave two with wave one, there was no increased rates of reinfection um, compared to a primary infection, meaning you're more likely if you tested positive with COVID to have a de novo infection. And then this was also consistent in wave three. Um, however, in this current surge, 11.1 to 11.27, Compared to wave one, your hazard ratio of reinfection was 2.39. And so what this means is that if you tested positive for COVID-19, you were more likely to have a reinfection with this variant than a primary infection. And so the takeaways that they concluded were that um, there's increased rates of reinfection, there's substantial immune evasion by Omicron, and that this rate of reinfection with this variant directly contrasts rates of reinfection from both the beta and the delta variants, as were prior described in the um, Pierce and uh, Siren studies. So why? Why is this more effective? Why do you have increased rates of reinfection? Um, why does it evade innate immunity? And I think given the relatively rapid rise and the limited amount of time to analyze, the best data that I could find was um, through artificial intelligence modeling, um, and it was by Chen et al. This came out last week, and so this was looking at the Omicron variant, looking at infectivity, vaccine breakthrough, and antibody resistance. Um, this was published in the Journal of Chemical Information and Modeling, which is not my strong suit, um, and it was pretty granular, um, but I'll try and summarize the takeaways. So the data is... Um, um, from artificial intelligence model, deep learning, and uh, predictive analysis. And the system they use is called TopNetMAB, and they have 1.9 years of extensively validated models. Um, and for example, they cite a correlation coefficient of about 0.7, and 
for all the possible 3,000 plus RBD mutations um, compared to experimental deep mutational data. And again, a correlation coefficient of about seven um, is, is a pretty strong correlation. And so what they've been able to show through their predictive models is that the infectivity will likely be 10 times more infectious than the original COVID virus and 2.8 times more infectious than the Delta variant. And the reason for that is due to the mutations at the spike protein. And just to remind everyone, um, the spike protein contains the um, RBD receptor binding domain that binds with the ACE2 um, expressive molecule on the surface of our cells to gain entry into the cells. And so the spike chain, the spike protein is really where we have antigenic targets of the antibodies, both natural or vaccine induced. And when there's mutations on the spike protein, there's increased risk of immune escape and uh, vaccine breakthrough. And so Omicron has proven 32 novel mutations versus just five novel mutations of the Delta variant on the spike protein. And so how are they able to come up with this predictive model? Um, well, it's through determinations of binding free energy. Um, so the stronger um, BFE, the more likely it is to gain access to the cell. Um, and so the mutations in this S protein have increased the um, BFE, um, and this has been guided through supposedly natural selection. As a virus is exposed to more and more um, innate and vaccine-induced immunogenicity, it kind of calls the mutations to be pre-selected out to make it the most infectious. So we think that this is more infectious due to the S protein mutations, the 32 mutations there. We think that this leads to increased infectivity because it increases the BFE. And we think that it causes vaccine breakthrough for very similar reasons. Um, you have these mutations on the S protein that lead to an 88% likelihood to escape the current vaccines. And this is a 14-fold higher vaccine escape capability than Delta. And so this study compared or looked at the ability of Omicron um, versus other variants of concern to be treated with or blocked receptor spike protein interactions with monoclonals. And they've compared Eli Lilly's, Regeneron's, AstraZeneca, GlaxoSmithKline, and Celtron. Um, and they found that most of these are ineffective um, due to the inability to block the spike protein from binding to the ACE receptor. And so I do want to highlight the GlaxoSmithKline. This was the only monoclonal antibody formulation that is supposedly um, effective um, in preventing um, S-protein RBD ACE binding. And we'll talk about that moving forward. So we talked about the numbers. We talked about the rates of reinfection, presumed um, increased infectivity and vaccine escape. And we talked about the reason why, um, which is the mutation at the um, spike protein, specifically the spike protein receptor binding domain. And so in addition to all of the increased rates of infectivity, vaccine escape, um, and then changes to monoclonal regimens, um, how else um, does it affect the current treatments? And so we'll talk about what treatments we have now um, and what treatments may still be effective moving forward. So I'm gonna focus on some monoclonals. I'm gonna focus on the new oral agents. I'll talk about remdesivir as uh, the pine tree data um, was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And then I'll just briefly discuss the dexamethasone 
um, and immune modulators, IL-6 antagonists, and Janus kinase inhibitors. So monoclonal antibodies, uh, proprietary blends um, that are delivered via IV um, routes of administration. So we've talked about um, how the mutational changes cause the virus to escape monoclonal antibody binding. Um, and so the ones that are presumed outdated for Omicron include the um, BAM-LAN-IVIMAB and the Cassirivimab. Um, and so these were previously proven to be effective um, at decreasing the absolute and relative risk reduction of hospitalizations or death. So the BLAZE-1 trial in patients with mild to moderate COVID um, showed a 5% and 87% relative risk reduction. And then the trial that does not have a fancy name looking at this combination um, showed about a 3.3% absolute and 71% relative risk reduction. Again, these are in outpatient mild to moderate um, COVID diagnoses, mild to moderate COVID infections. We have this third monoclonal now. Um, this is the GlaxoSmithKline, and it's Sotrovimab. And this was proven to show a 6% absolute and 85% relative risk reduction of hospitalizations or death from mild to moderate COVID in the Comet ICE trial. Um, which had the lowest enrollment um, with an N of 583 patients. Um, but so as we as a healthcare facility shift from having an infusion clinic, um, giving IV monoclonals um, to not doing that anymore due to the vaccine of concerns ability, or sorry, the variant of concerns ability to escape, it is worth remembering that there is at least one monoclonal that may be effective. And so what about Omicron? Um, and so, as you can see, with the different variants of concern, um, BAM, CAS, all seem to be um, abilities to treat Delta. However, in Omicron, it's anticipated to be markedly reduced, and we do not see that with sotrovimab. So we talked about the monoclonals. Um, we talked about GlaxoSmithKline's potentially still having efficacy in mild to moderate COVID, preventing hospitalizations and death. Um, and we've talked about the ineffective previously used monoclonals. Now I'm just going to briefly discuss the newly approved agents, um, which have EUA approval. Um, I'm going to talk about Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. Um, and I'm going to discuss the efficacy um, and then the regimen and then some of the side effects and kind of little keys for prescribing, which we probably in critical care will not do because um, these agents are approved for outpatient positive patients um, who have tested positive within um, the first five days of symptoms. All right, so Paxlovid, um, produced by Pfizer. It's ritonavir, and it's boosted nirmatrelivir. Um, so nirmatrelivir is a protease inhibitor against MPRO, um, and this inhibits viral replication. Um, and the ritonavir um, leads to um, disruption of viral replication. It's a five-day course, um, three pills a day. This was proven to be effective um, in a relative risk reduction of 88% for hospitalization or death compared to placebo. Um, and this included uh, 2,246 patients. This is compared with molnupiravir, which was one of the um, first, so the move out trial was one of the first published, which showed a risk reduction of about 30% um, 
for hospitalization uh, or death versus placebo. And so monopiravir um, induces lethal viral mutations. And again, it's prescribed for a five-day course. So monoclonals and then oral agents, Paxlovid and monopiravir. Um, considering prescribing either of these or considering seeing or in, encountering patients who've been on these, um, here's some of the granular details. Um, there's 65,000 courses in the first allotment from Pfizer for Paxlovid compared to 300,000 from Merck for monopiravir. Paxlovid is approved for patients greater than 12 years and 40 kilograms, while monopiravir is 18 and up. Again, both are indicated within five days of symptom onset and positive tests. Paxlovid has um, dosing considerations and avoidance in severe hepatic dysfunction, child puke uh, severity three, and then you want to avoid an EGFR less than 30. Um, no hepatic adjustments or renal adjustments for monopiravir. And then in pregnancy, so do not use in pregnancy, do not use in breastfeeding, monopiravir. And in patients, in male patients, you want to advise three months abstinence for strict contraception in male patients. Dr. Nusim, I think you're um, not. Sorry, Papa. No problem. Um, and then for Paxlovid, um, there's multiple drug inter interactions, and this is mostly from the ritonavir um, component. And then side effects. Monopiravir, you have diarrhea nausea, dizziness, and then for Paxlovid, you have diarrhea, hypertension, and myalgia. And does anyone know what dysgesia is? I didn't. I had to look it up. Change in... Dysgusia. Dysgusia? Thank you, Dr. Morris. Is that how you say it? Dysgusia. Yeah. See? Great. Appreciate it. Um, all right. So we talked about monoclonals, we talked about oral agents, we talked about the side effects and certain um, things to keep in mind, encountering patients who may have been on these. Um, what about remdesivir, one of the first approved therapies? And so remdesivir is um, approved for inpatient administration. And again, it's administered via IV. Um, so outpatient administration may be challenging. There was a recent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in December, which looked at 562 patients who were COVID positive receiving outpatient IV remdesivir compared to placebo. So the primary endpoints were hospitalization or death by day 28, and then any adverse event. And then the secondary endpoints wanted to look at um, COVID-19 related medically attended visit or different many calls. And this ran from September 2020 to April 2021, and it was multi-site, multinational, USA, UK, Spam. So primary efficacy, um, it's it's interesting. So we'll we'll look at this kind of Quentin Tarantino style. We'll look at the end first, and then go through and figure out how we got there. So the conclusions from the Pine Tree study showed that among non-hospitalized patients who are at high risk for COVID-19 progression, remdesivir resulted in 87% lower risk of hospitalization or death than placebo. So that's not wrong, um, but I think it may be overstating. So from an efficacy standpoint, if you received remdesivir, you 
only two patients required hospitalizations compared to 15 patients who were treated with placebo. But most interestingly, there were no deaths in either arm. So if you received a placebo, you had equal mortality chances if you received remdesivir. And then the secondary points um, were achieved. You had four patients receiving a medically attended visit compared to 21 patients in the placebo group. Um, adverse events were close, 42% of remdesivir versus 46%, most uh, common nausea. But so in this outpatient trial of using remdesivir IV um, once daily for three days, it did decrease the rate of hospitalization. Um, I don't see any difference in mortality since there were no deaths in the study, placebo or intervention. So how do we incorporate this um, just globally in the general population? How do we combat misinformation? How do we advise patients and loved ones? Um, because, you know, outpatient care really um, is, is, of course, a different animal than inpatient intensive care. But I do think it's important to understand and, and keep up with these advances. So the CDC recommends um, oral agent Paxlovid, then if that's unavailable or contraindicated, to use sotrovimab, the monoclonal. If that's unavailable or contraindicated, they recommend a three-day course of outpatient remdesivir. And then lastly, they would recommend monopiravir. Now, if we use remdesivir, that's off-label and difficult to administer. Um, and I don't know what our capabilities are in this system to give any more monoclonals or IV remdesivir. If anyone's had success, anyone in pharmacy or infectious disease, um, I would love to hear the pathways to get patients on in order to achieve these uh, therapeutic targets. All right, so we talked about the numbers. We talked about Omicron and the uniqueness of this variant of concern. We talked about different treatments, um, both rendered ineffective and currently effective. Um, and then before I move on to, you know, kind of discussion of crisis standards of care, I do want to bring up uh, a brief thought on anticoagulation um, because uh, this comes up every time I'm back in our medical ICU. Are we still doing intermediate dose heparin? Are we not doing intermediate dose heparin? Um, really, where is the data um, showing and what is recommended by the CDC? And then, you know, what is medically defensible, I guess? And so I want to point out that in the CDC recommends um, that all patients hospitalized with an elevated D-dimer on low-flow oxygen receive therapeutic dose heparin or equivalent low-molecular weight heparin, and that's C2A. This is contrasted with hospitalized non-pregnant adults in the ICU regardless of what D-dimer is. So they recommend prophylactic dose heparin only, and they recommend against intermediate dose and therapeutic dose anticoagulation. Further, they recommend that if someone who had been previously on low-flow oxygen, therapeutic dose anticoagulation, to switch them from therapeutic to prophylactic dose only, um, which I thought was very interesting and may not have been um, kind of where we had been at um, care-wise in the past. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts. Wanna, I see the chat is active. Oh, here we are. Um, all right, so Amy, I'm just going to read out the chat just to kind of make it more inclusive. So Amy says, um, the monoclonal sotrovimab is allocated, refer to Baltimore City Convention Center, Field Hospital. Excellent. Um, and then Walgreens. Yeah, so Walgreens has the oral agents. Excellent. 
Um, and then Anna Lasso asks, do you have a link on how to refer a patient there? And then Dr. Shanholtz, uh, Baltimore City Field Hospital reopened. I don't know. Okay. Anyone have any thoughts they want to share out loud? Well, I guess something we're seeing in the neuro ICU and um, not just here but around the country is that <clears throat> patients with without clear symptomatic COVID are showing up with thrombotic events without really having significant risk factors for those events and they're COVID positive and none of us know what to do with this but I think um, we saw this in the kind of the first surge and we're seeing it even more now and it's very confusing to know what to do with those patients. Yeah, um, I don't have an answer. I don't know. Does anyone have any thoughts? Hi, this is Sam Tisherman. We've seen a little of this in the SICU, too, with arterial thrombosis, vascular disease. And it's fairly easy there because they're going to get fully anticoagulated, which may be a little different from the neuro population. I think um, kind of an interesting concept is um, these patients are a little bit different than those who aren't presenting with a thrombosis identified, either venous or arterial. Um, and then if these patients that come in that don't have identified thromboses, is it preventable with just prophylactic dose heparin? Um, or really should we be considering intermediate dose and therapeutic dose AC in, in low-risk patients? Um, the reason they recommend against this is just because of the increased risk of bleeding propensity in the ICU. I don't know, I don't know if this is going to change anyone's practice. I don't know if we're still doing intermediate dose in our medical ICU. I'm um, sorry. Um, can I, this is Dan Hart, can I ask, are we surveying patients? In other words, do we have a policy just to continuously survey patients so that we can make the decision to fully anticoagulate if we have to. Uh, you mean like serial duplexes? Some Something. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. D-dimer is not that good once you become a, lay, a patient laying in bed for a day or two. It's just terrible. Yeah, admittedly. Um, nothing as of, I mean, there was no kind of agreed upon um, reflex to, to get Dopplers. I think, you know, just a standard physical exam findings would um, kind of lead us down that route. Um, maybe that's something that's, you know, low risk, um, high reward for some of these patients. Yeah, we're really good at physical exam, I know, right? <laughs> Come on, really? Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, but nothing well, we that all do have ultrasound, right? And we all can do a quick, you know, look at the, the veins, the femoral veins at least, Um I, I just, I, you know, being in a regional in a regional area in a community hospital, I, I certainly have started to look harder because I am seeing literally subsegmental PEs all over the place. At least that's how the because everybody gets a CAT scan in rural America, I think. But I'm seeing these segmental PEs, and I just don't know what to do with them. Uh -huh. um, and I see, then I just go and look for the clot. If I find a decent clot somewhere, then I, I anticoagulate these patients. That's just the way I go. I'm not sure what to do with the subsegmentals. If they're getting worse, I treat them. If they're staying stable and getting better, I leave them alone. Yeah, so I think ACCP um, guidance now is against treating subsegmental BEs, but the caveat is in the critically ill population, it changes the threshold. So 
it depends on how sick they are from their critical illness. And if they're sick and getting worse, that, I think that changes the calculus and you got to treat it. But, but if they were an incidental finding and you have subsidental PEs in a non-critically ill patient, you probably wouldn't treat it. But even outside of COVID, it's not that uncommon to see some sub-segmental PEs in patients who clearly have other reasons for whatever reason you get scan the patient. Somebody's going to come along and want to try to anticoagulate them and have to put the brakes on them. Danielle, I don't know if anybody has experience with this, just with patients coming to the ICU, but like, is it now practice for the, all the inpatients to be on therapeutic? Like, are we routinely having to de-escalate to prophylactic in the ICU when they get upgraded? I don't know that it's common practice. I don't think we have adapted the practice to... Um, and frankly, anticoagulate in the non-ICU patients, so I don't think we have done that yet. Mm. Okay, so it's still kind of reactive. It's just having more of a high or a lower threshold for anticoagulating in the floor patients. I believe that's the case, but I don't know if they have met. I mean, the system group met again to review the updated NIH guidelines to think about therapeutic um, heparin. And then now with the heparin shortage, I don't know how, how feasible that is. True. Thank you. So, yeah, I thought that was a, a interesting caveat I found on the CDC website. wanted to bring that to attention. Uh, so moving on from talking about the numbers and infectivity and the surge and treatments, um, I think it's, we could talk about kind of crisis staffing and standards. I mean, I think everyone's familiar with or should be familiar with the this is fine meme. Um, but my concern is if we continue to allow kind of this, everything's on fire all the time, we will, as a healthcare or individually, shift to the panel on the right, which is us burned out and hallucinating being surrounded by puppy dogs. Um, and so what does that look like from an infectivity rate? Um, and we could see at the height of the surge, um, the healthcare rates of infection versus kind of where we're at now um, with a little bit of an increase around the holidays. Um, and then it's important to, again, I think we all say this, but take care of yourself, take care of um, those around you. Um, 848,000 healthcare personnel tested positive during this pandemic, which isn't surprising given it does not discriminate. Um, so what does that mean though, in regards to healthcare personnel um, obligation to patient care. When can we return to work? I mean, I know this was getting a lot of media attention probably last week, but in crisis standards, there are no work restrictions. Um, and asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic patient, uh, healthcare personnel who have tested positive. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's something that's difficult to kind of wrap your head around, I think. And then moving further along, and, and I think we can discuss this further as a group, but um, the updated 2021 American Heart Association guidelines um, have come out and said uh, for in-hospital arrests, um, initiate chest compressions immediately. And then if not already masked, you should don their mask without delaying or interrupting compressions, which is a little bit different than completely putting on PPE and then doing the CPR. Uh, not updated. Yeah, this does predate Omicron. This came out in October. You're absolutely right, um, Dr. Morris. Um, 
so it's not updated for the Omicron. This is updated during, I guess, the the Delta wave um, before we had this rapid surge. Um, and then just before we move on, just what's on the horizon. So there was another variant of concern which had more mutations than Omicron, um, making it genetically distinct from the initial SARS-CoV-2 um, virus. And this was identified in France, um, and it seemed to have burned out, um, but it had just gotten recent media attention. Um, but again, this was back in November. We're not seeing this um, kind of rapidly proliferate. And then there was this recent um, article that came out. Um, it was on GMA uh, earlier this week with the shocking headline that out of all the patients infected with Omicron in Kaiser Permanente in California, no patient who was tested outpatient required mechanical ventilation. Um, so is this a sign of hope? So it doesn't have a fancy name, but I named it the HOPE COVID trial. Um, this was data retrospective review of um, all positive patients in Kaiser Permanente who tested as an outpatient. So keep that population in mind. Um, they looked at five key metrics, time to hospital admission, hospital admission associated with new onset respiratory symptoms or symptomatic hospitalization, ICU admission, mechanical ventilation, and mortality. And they compared Delta and Omicron. And so of the close to 53,000 Omicron patients, 0.5% um, had a hospitalization compared to 1.3% of all Delta infections. And then among the outpatient cases, hazard ratio were significantly less for hospitalization, for symptomatic hospitalization, for ICU admission, and for mortality. Bill, this was just in the Kaiser population? Just in the Kaiser population. And, and do we know the vaccination rate in that population? Uh, I will be able to look at it a little bit further. I'll send it to you. I don't know. They do say that um, there seems to be decreased efficacy in vaccinations uh, or the, from the vaccines, um, but, and we'll get to that. But I don't know the rates exactly. Um, and again, the population that they're reporting on were tested as an outpatient. These aren't patients that come to the hospital with respiratory symptoms and then test positive. Um, and I think that's important because having talked to Dr. Levine earlier this week, you see headlines that no one needed mechanical ventilation. And then really, what are we doing wrong? Why do we have COVID positive patients needing intubation? Um, and I say, so, um, Part of it is, and you may get to these data, uh, Rob Reed's um, posted some data from um, Washington State Department of Health and looking at subgroups, like the subgroup that was never vaccinated and never infected versus people who at least have received um you know, all their vaccinations or had previous infection and had residual immunity. And when you look at this, the subgroups, I mean, the, the risk of getting Omicron, you know, yeah, there's a higher risk of getting Omicron um, reinfection if you were vaccinated or previously infected, but the risk is still higher if you were never vaccinated and had no immunity. And the risk is many, many times greater for hospitalization, um, symptomatic infection, hospitalization, and death uh, if you were never vaccinated and never infected and had no immunity. Um, so 
part part of the reason Omicron may look like it's less virulent, it may truly be less virulent, but a big part of it is dilutional effect. It's so transmissible, and there are reinfections amongst the people who have residual immunity who don't get as sick that it, you know, goes into the denominator and dilutes out the um, um, the population. But if if you look at what's going on in the ICU amongst the unvaccinated, they're getting just as sick as I've seen with Delta. Mm-hmm. You know, multi-organ system failure, prone positioning, ventilation, severe ARDS. So I think I, I, I think they've got to be careful with the messaging because people think, well, Omicron may be the live attenuated virus and it's no big deal. I might as well go out and get infected and be done with it. And, it, you know, it's um, – um, and amongst people with no immunity, it's still a dangerous virus. I mean, completely agreed. I mean, if you look at the total numbers, more patients with Omicron were hospitalized than patients with the Delta variant. The rates of hospitalization were less because there was less patients testing positive for Delta. So I completely agree um, the dilutional um, increase in the denominator. Um, and then I think the population that they evaluated also affects their outcomes, which doesn't come across in a GMA headline. Right? If you have outpatients that are testing positive, these are asymptomatic um, incidental findings, or these are minimally symptomatic patients versus some patient who presents to the, the population that presents to the emergency department with cough, hypoxemia, um, uh, you know, the viral prodrome. So I, I think that's also missed um, and kind of um, shied away from in these headlines. Uh, and so this is the takeaway that was being reported. You have a 52% risk, decreased risk of hospitalization, 53% decreased rate of symptomatic hospitalization, a 75% decreased rate of uh, ICU admission, and then a 91% rate of decreased mortality. Uh, But that's not comparing Omicron outpatient to Delta outpatient. That's comparing Omicron to all patients with Delta. And then the risk of hospitalization is reduced if you had prior Delta infection. So I think the natural immunity does come into play here. Uh, But Omicron does show continued immune evasion and then the decreased efficacy of vaccines preventing primary infection. Um, so that's all the data I wanted to talk about. I think we do have a few minutes to discuss what crisis of, uh, and standards of care would be. I don't know if, Dr. Channel, if you have any input on that. 